Hello, boys and ghouls. Welcome to a very special interview episode of Dads from the Crypt. Today, we're talking to director-writer John Harrison. He directed Tales from the Crypt Season 3 episode, Top Billing, and he directed and wrote the Season 6 episode, The Pit. He also directed many episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, including the Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. And most recently, he wrote and directed episodes of Creep Show TV series on Shudder. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Jason. Good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we got a lot to get through. Uh, you have an amazing, very varied career. So let's jump right into it. Um, sure. So you're you're a Pittsburgh boy. Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, went to school there, then off to college. Um, did come back uh, after being on the road as a musician for a few years. And uh, it was a good move because at the time, Pittsburgh was really... Uh, quite an active place in filmmaking. The the public television station, WQED, was doing national programming. Um, There was a a major video production house called TPC, which was doing a lot of national commercials. Um, And there was George Romero, who was uh, uh, living in Pittsburgh at the time. In fact, he went to school there and and had made all of his films there. And uh, I was lucky enough to fall into his orbit and uh, the rest is history. I lived there until the, uh, till about 1980 and then uh, moved out to L.A. and carried on from there. And so did you I read that you were involved with uh, Night of the Living Dead? No, I was never involved in Night of the Living Dead, uh, although it was an inspiration to me when I was going to school in Boston, because when it came out, um, it was uh, playing at the Orson Welles Theater on Mass Ave, and I went to see it at a midnight screening, and I looked at it, and I said, man, if a guy can do this to an audience from Pittsburgh, then uh, I, I got to meet this guy. <laughs> so we, uh, when I went back to Pittsburgh, I formed a little production company with two of my best friends, uh, the director, Dusty Nelson, and the editor, Pat Booba. Uh, and uh, we had a small production company and offered our services to George, and he came and met us, and we ended up all working together. All right. And then uh, did Rowdy Harrington uh, fall into your orbit then? Oh, sure. Rowdy was at WQED, and um, you, you got to know about Pittsburgh. It's a small town in many ways. Um, so, And in the filmmaking world, if that's what you wanted to do, you kind of knew everybody. Um, so, yeah, I knew Rowdy. Um, and uh, my wife and his wife were best friends. And uh, in Los Angeles, we spent a lot of time together. He's actually mm-hmm. cast me in two of his movies. I've played bums. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're in Jack's back. Yeah, we had Rowdy on the previous episode. I'll have to get you guys together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Rowdy did a couple of crypts. I wrote one for him, as a matter of fact. And uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. And we're, you know, he's had a great career. All right. And then uh, how did you get involved with Tales from the Dark Side? Well, Tales from the Dark Side came together because of George. Um, When uh, George and his then partner, Richard Rubenstein, had a company called Laurel Film and Tape, 
which then became Laurel Productions. They made several movies um, in a deal with uh, Salah Hassanin and, and United Film Distribution. And one of those movies was Creepshow. And um, Creepshow was very successful. We all worked on it. Um, there was talk of trying to do a television series based on that anthology format, but it could never really come together. Certain rights issues uh, got in the way. Basically what Richard and George did was they took the idea of horror anthology and just reinvented it and called it Tales from the Dark Side. So they created two production schemes, one in New York and one in Los Angeles. I had moved to Los Angeles by that time and George and I, he knew that I was trying to write and direct. And uh, it was a great, uh, it was the best film school I could have ever gone to because we had no money. They didn't pay us uh, very much. Um, the director, I think, was the lowest paid man on the crew. <laughs> um, it was not DGA, of course. Um, but what you got to do was make a little, a, a small movie every week. Mm -hmm. And I did four seasons of it. Um, had some wonderful experiences with crew and with talent because a lot of actors wanted to work and we had really big name talent come and do that show even though they were like a hundred grand an episode uh became incredibly popular and uh so i did i did shows both in la and new york and then uh at the end of the 80s uh richard said that he wanted to make a movie and uh, Paramount wanted to do it. And uh, he asked me if I would direct it. And uh, of course I was thrilled to do it. And uh, so we did uh, the Tales from the Dark Side movie for Paramount. Okay, I, I realized I was mistaken. You were Screwdriver Zombie in Dawn of the Dead, not Night Living Dead. I am, I am Screwdriver <laughs> Zombie. Probably the thing I'm best known for. <laughs> All right. Now let's talk about Tales of the Dark Side, the movie. Uh, first of all, what an amazing cast. Fantastic cast. Um, the success of the TV series, I think, greased the wheels for us a little bit because people uh, knew that it was fun, uh, that we were serious, um, that we were really trying to do good product. But who knew who Julianne Moore was then? Mm -hmm. Who knew who that Steve was? That was her first acting role? Uh, yeah, I think it was her first, if not the first, one of the very first uh, movie roles. Uh, obviously, she'd been an actress for a right. while and yeah. had training and stage work and so forth. But they all came in and they were all game. You know, Jamie Remar, Ray Don Chong. Uh, Steve Buscemi. I mean, there was just and, yeah. Buscemi and, and uh, Bill Hickey. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just a... And they all... Uh, they all came to work and they were all really enthusiastic. I don't think anybody thought they were slumming it. I don't think anybody thought they were just phoning it in. Um, and I think that's why the movie turned out so well. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, we mentioned William Hickey. I think he probably won the uh, horror anthology man of the year for 1990. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he had pretty much a whole segment in, in the Tales of the Dark Side. And he was also in the episode of Tales of the Crypt, uh, The Switch. Yep. Directed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, where he plays pretty much the same the same kind of guy. Same kind of guy, yeah. And he was fun to work with, man. I mean, because he's been around for had been around forever. And David Johansson, who played the uh, the hitman in that mm -hmm. show, uh, Buster Poindexter, aka, 
um, the two of them were just hilarious because they would just go down to the green room and like drink gin and then come up on the set and they would be telling jokes to each other. I mean, it was hard for me and the crew not to just laugh out loud constantly. Uh, it was just, just such a fun shoot. Now, as a, as a musician, uh, musician, uh, did you intentionally uh, cast um, other musicians, Debbie Harry, but, um, Buster Poindexter, um, in those roles, or that just happened organically? Not because they were in the music business, but because they were personalities that really fit the roles that they were going to play. Uh, Debbie uh, was, <laughs> she was so intrigued by the idea of playing this uh, witch from uh, the suburbs, um, and she just came in and nailed it. Um, and the only time she ever had any, uh, any reluctance was when I told her we were going to push her into an oven and set her on fire, but she was game. You know, she was game. She was ready to do it. And as I said before, David was just hilarious. He was just always funny and always uh, ready to, to, to go wherever I wanted him to go, including having a catch scratch his crotch, <laughs> rip, rip his pants to shreds. Or go down his um, throat. That was, oof. that's, that's an image. Yeah, that made us all a little squeamish. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love. I, I, I want a whole backstory to uh, Debbie Harry's character because she just plays it so deadpan about like looking in a cookbook and trying to figure out the timing of how to cook, how long to cook a child. Because well, we've, was- we've all done that with like a turkey. Like, okay, it needs to have so long to cool off, so long to cook, so long to dress, so long to brine. We've all done that math. But then she's doing it for a child. It was hilarious. Well, I think that was do. It was good writing. And um, so the characters were alive on the page. And as I said before, people knew the kind of tongue-in-cheek tone that Tales from the Dark Side had. Um, so uh, we didn't play it for laughs. We played it straight. But the situation and the script, and as you point out, Debbie's deadpan performance just had lots of laughs. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, James Remar gives this like heartbreaking performance. Well, um, Jamie is still a friend of mine, and um, he was wonderful to work with. Um, and yeah, that was the great thing about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, is that each story uh, was a different tone. You had a very classic mummy story. You had a very nasty, monochromatic hitman story with the cat from hell. And then you had this almost soft palette love story. Uh, which was the gargoyle story, and Jamie and Ray Dawn just pulled it off. Oh, the the part with the kids at the at the end of that it was like again as a father. The at first you're like, oh no, these kids are going to see their mother turn into a gargoyle demon, and then the fact that they show up as little like you realize they went through a transformation. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and then you see them at the end up on the roof, and they're just like turned to stone. Oh, totally yeah. heartbreaking. And, and, and Jamie pulls it off because when he realizes what he's done, the horror in his expression, and, and it's, it's, it's a really wonderful uh, twist in his character because he's doing what he thinks is the right thing, the thing that he really has to do for his wife, this woman that he loves, the deep secret that he's been keeping all these years. 
he feels I can't keep this from him anymore and or keep this from her. And of course, she's looking at him like, well, what are you going to tell me? You've been sleeping with another woman. You've been going out with my best friend. What's this all about? And then, of course, he lowers the boom and her face just falls. And it's yeah. like, and you know that you know that she is the the creature from the beginning. It's, at least for me, yeah, I, I, didn't I, kind of... to, I didn't try to hide it, Jason. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a shot uh, we're tracking with her the very first time we see her. And we had her in this duster kind of coat and the duster kind of flares out as she's uh, walking. Okay. Not unlike the wings that we had seen in the previous scene. Yeah. But see, that's and good filmmaking because that's like subliminal almost where you're not, you're not, you're showing, not yeah. telling. And so, so I debated this and we all debated it. Should we tip it off too much? And my feeling was, look, the audience is not stupid. They're going to, we don't want them to get too far ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So if we continue to pull uh, uh, hide the hide the suspense routine, it's not going to work because they'll say, well, I, I know it's her. I know it's her. So by allowing them to kind of be part of the story and allowing them to kind of say, yeah, I know it's her. We're saying, yeah, but you don't know how it's going to end. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, yeah, the, the, kid, the kids show they, up and you're like, oh, wow, this is going to be even bigger. That ups yeah. the that really ups the ante, um, and just real quick, I the the mummy segment. I think that's one of the best mummy designs since like Karloff for the Universal movies. I think that's well, still really effective. And as you know, filmmaking is a collaborative effort all the way. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no one man band in filmmaking, and um, so a good director casts his crew just like he casts the cast. And I'm very lucky to have had a great relationship with Greg Nicotero and his pals. That was their first big job as a company. Mm, really? Gave them KMB effects. That was their first big job. And they nailed it. I've used them on everything that I've done that has had those kinds of creature effects. They created the, the baby worms in Dune. Mm. Um, they, uh, of course, they're yeah, credit lit. Yeah unbelievable and of course now i'm working with them on creep show the tv series um but yeah it was a beautiful design he designed the gargoyle he designed the mummy um and uh so yeah it was great to have him as part of the team him and his him and, and howard and bob and uh bob kurtzman now, so you did eight episodes of Tales of the Dark Side. You did the Dark Side, the movie, and then all that is kind of wound down. And then you're asked to come up. How do you get into uh, Tales from the Crypt? Well, Bill Teitler was the producer of Tales from the Dark Side, the TV show. Mm -hmm. And Bill came out to Los Angeles and Joel hired, Joel Silver hired him to be the producer for the first season of Tales from the Crypt. And I got a call. Uh, Bill and I had a good relationship. We did a a terrific Tales from the Dark Side episode that I was nominated for the Writers Guild Award uh, for called Everybody Needs a Little Love with Jerry Orbach and Richard Portnow. I'd written it and directed it. And so we got along great. And he called me up and he said, we got a script and uh, I need a little help with this. Um, but uh, if you can and you could direct it, um, you know, I'd love to get, get you on the team. So Bill Teitler was the one that pulled me into that. It was a, mm. an episode called Easel Kill You. Right. And it starred Tim Roth and Roy Amenio, who's another dear friend of mine, who's unfortunately no, no, longer, no longer with us. But um, there was a script that I uh, did a pass on and rewrote. Um, 
and uh, then directed. And that was my entry into it. And then things went from there. Was Tim Roth already cast when you came on or were you part of that? No, no, no. I, ca- I didn't, I can't say I cast him. The casting was really done through Joel and Alan Katz and, uh, you know, the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew who they wanted to go after. And Tim was really at the beginning of his career in the U.S. Right. And in fact, he was telling me when we were uh, uh, doing uh, some ADR, I said, well, what are you doing now? And he said, oh, I'm off to, to do this show with this young director. And it's, I think it's called uh, uh, Welcome to the Boneyard or something like that. It ended up being uh, uh, Tarantino's first movie. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, yeah. Reservoir Dogs, yeah. Um, now, this episode, I found a lot of parallels to the, uh, the Gargoyle episode in Tales from the Dark Side, it's kind of the, the, the same trajectory, obviously different trappings. Tortured artist. Tortured artist who, you know, tries to do something right for the woman he loves, but his own, he gets in his own way, for lack of and a better word. ends up being a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why Bill said, okay, I have this script, what do I do with it? Oh, mm-hmm. I know, I'll get Harrison, you know, because he's already treaded these waters. And uh, I loved it. I loved that story. Uh, Bob Zemeckis told me it was one of his favorites. And um, uh, obviously we had a great cast. You know, we had Tim um, and we had William Atherton and Roy Mignot. And it was just, and also we had, the difference between Crypt and Dark Side was a lot financial, of course. Um, we had a great deal more money on Tales from the Crypt. So we could do things like, go out to Malibu and uh, use that beautiful home mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for William Atherton's home. Right. We were wondering about that. So that was just someone's home that you, that. Uh, yeah, that was, was a, that was a location. Everything else was a set, mm-hmm. but that was a, uh, a real location. Right. Yeah. We were, t- because we actually just, we reviewed this episode a couple days ago on our oh. podcast. It hasn't come out yet, but by the time this comes out, it'll come out. But we're yeah. talking about how this is like really white. Um, uh, what's the word? Very modern, very sterile. Modern, sterile. Yeah, that's the word. It's a very sterile, but with these like shocking paintings hung yes. up around it, and the, it's a very just. It was a very shocking contrast. Well, that was the idea. I mean, right. the idea of this guy who uh, loves gruesome art um, and uh, uh, has has on his walls all these photographs of catastrophes like airline crashes and mm. war zones and so forth and falls in love with Tim's art, um, which of course is Tim's undoing. Right. So yeah, so this is a very like Greek tragedy um, episode. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess most Tales of the Crypt episodes are Greek tragedy or somehow Greek tragedies, but this one, this one is a little more serious than the average tales, but doesn't go too far. Well, the great thing about Tales from the Crypt, if you remember the magazines, Weird Tales, Tales from the Crypt, uh, Tales from the Vault, all those great comics back in the day, they always were morality stories. Mm -hmm. And the bad guys always got a gruesome comeuppance. And that was part of the fun of them. And, uh, of course, they were gruesome and and were banned for a long time, which was totally ridiculous. But as, uh, as we all know, those of us who love horror, it's the forbidden fruit that mm-hmm. really makes it popular. So there you go. Um, now, here's a, here's a question maybe you can settle for us. 
So there's the scene where Tim Roth is on the fire escape and his neighbor is playing some loud music. Yeah. We we're trying to figure out, is that a real song or is it just something who, who wrote that song? Is it a, a, a previous song? Was it written for the episode? Uh, no, it was, it was written for the episode and it was written by um, the composer uh, whose name escapes me, Robinson. Uh, first name escapes me at the moment, but uh, it was a, it was an original song composed for the, for the episode. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, we're yeah, because we're big my especially Mondo, my co-host, is a really big metal music fan, and we were trying to figure out what that song was because we thought it was pretty fun. Um, okay, and then uh we haven't covered it on my podcast yet, but we're I want to ask you about the pit episode you also directed. Um, I watched that last night to prepare. So my first question is where was that cage uh filmed? It looked like it was some sort of auditorium, it was it like a high school? Yeah, you no, know, it was an auditorium. It was the, the old boxing arena in downtown LA. Hmm. <laughs> um, I forget what the actual name of that arena was, um, but uh, lots of famous boxing matches down there. And uh, of course, we didn't have the money to fill it up with with people. Right. <laughs> but it was good to uh, to to create the cage for the fight, and then I knew that I could black out the surround uh, the surrounding area and didn't need a lot of extras. So what I did do occasionally was take a camera up into the balcony and I got about eight or 10 people and uh, I got, I would get eight or 10 people and put them down in the seats so I could shoot through them to see the, the cage down below. And then I could have people raising their hands and jumping up and down and make it look like there was a big audience when in fact there was no one there. Right. There, I forgot what movie it was. There was a sporting movie where they talked about, yeah, they only had like 50 people for a huge like outdoor uh, football arena during the day. And they just had them yeah. sit in different sections at different times and just made them they're like a guy on the bullhorn. Say, okay, everyone move over there. Yes. Um, so, and now anytime I watch a big arena scene in the movie or TV show, I look in the background to see if I can, you can see where the audience is sitting and how it shifts. Well, back in the day, we couldn't do, you know, we couldn't do what Peter Jackson can do with like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, digital characters and so forth and create, you know, an army of orcs and so forth with, with nothing but computer characters. Um, we had to do what we call tiling, which was exactly what you described. You'd shoot an area of the stadium. You'd have 10 people here you'd lock off and then you'd say, okay, guys move to this side. They'd move over to the other side. Maybe you'd put different costumes on them. You'd certainly move them around. So they didn't sit in the same exact configuration. And you do that several times. And then in editing, you would composite all those shots and make it look like a bigger crowd. The other thing that we used to do, um, which we don't have to do anymore is uh, put people in those seats and then have cardboard cutouts all around. Yeah. I was going to say that was the other thing. Yeah. You wouldn't, uh, they, they just blur out and they just look like people, you know, people were there. Yeah. I think, I think this was for any given Sunday, which is one of my favorite movies and they had had cardboard cutouts and they put like, they tied balloons to them. So it looked like they were kind of moving, but you couldn't really tell because it's so far in the background. Yep. Exactly. Um, now here's another question. How did you get Gil and Alan to agree to pay for that cage with all the explosions and the effects and stuff? That was pretty cool. But it seemed like, wow, that's a lot of production there. Well, I don't know how I got them to, to do it, except to say it's going to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very cool. Um, and then I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but who do you think won in the end, Audrey or uh, I think it's Andrea? 
oh, I think they just beat each other to a pulp. <laughs> you know, I think it just ended up with the two of them completely like on the floor. I mean, I've watched these MMA fights, you know, mm-hmm. with both men and women, and they're so brutal. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that anybody survives those kinds of hits. So I think, uh, honestly, I don't know who would win that fight. I think they would just, uh, I think the guys would be sitting up there in the thing going, come on, keep going, keep going, keep <laughs> don't, get up off the mat, keep going, you know, until they mm-hmm. finally just completely obliterated each other. And you got a Wayne Newton to come on too. Yeah. Oh, well, that was uh, Joel's idea. And, um, you know, he was, uh, well, he's a wonderful guy. Um, and uh, really stepped up to do it. So I had no idea when Joel said, you're going to use, you know, Wayne Newton to be the guy. I said, well, okay. Um, but I don't, I don't know him. I have never worked with him. Obviously he's a performer has been since he was a child. Um, but he would come down every day, Jason, he would fly down in his own. He would fly his oh, really? own plane. Oh yeah. He would fly his own plane down from Vegas where he lived um, after his shows. And he would basically catnap in the plane until he had to be picked up by the limo and brought to the set. We'd finish with him, try to get him done relatively early in the shooting day. Uh, It wasn't always possible. And then uh, he would fly back and do his shows in Vegas. The guy was exhausted by the end of the week, uh, the five day shoot and five days of uh, his shows in Vegas. um, You could tell that he was really running on empty but he's you know he's a performer he stepped up he was fantastic right yeah that's a true performer doing uh, you know a tv show and performances back and forth and he's still able to put it on that's great well he loved it i mean he just wanted to do it and Mm -hmm. uh i guess joel was a friend of his and so uh, at his own expense he would fly down every day Uh, we could have put him up Mm -hmm. he could have stayed and you know, uh, Four Seasons Hotel or whatever. But no, he had these shows. He wasn't going to stop doing them. And so he went back and forth. Um, now, I know that usually the directors uh, don't really have anything to do with the wraparound with the Crypt Keeper. Um, but in the wraparound for this one, they have the Crypt Keeper, you know, doing um, Christmas uh, bit to promote the Tales from the Crypt uh, Christmas album. Right. Did you- which is hilarious on its own. Did you, but did you have any input or were you aware of that tie in or did he just give you the, the, the main script? No, uh, the directors were never involved in the wraparound. So that was all Alan and um, Joel and uh, whoever were creating those at the time. And uh, we didn't direct them. We weren't involved with them. Yeah. What's interesting because usually the wraparound is tied into the story of the episode and this one, I well, think, they just kind of they plugged that. in. I mean, and they would be, make it very clever in terms of what Kassir would say mm-hmm. uh, to relate it to the episode. All right. Um, let's move on a little bit. So you directed three episodes of the um, sci-fi series Earth 2. <laughs> now, the uh, the 14-year-old inside me is still bitter that that show was canceled after two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any TV shows that you think were canceled too soon that you're a little bitter about? I'm sure that there are a lot of them and I don't know that I could really come up with, you know, uh, just off the top of my head because 
I've watched a lot of TV over the years, but um, I love that show. And mm-hmm. um, I was really uh, one of the, well, this is an interesting story. One of the producers of that show was a fellow named Tony Toe. Tony Toe was my assistant director on Tales from the Dark Side. Hmm. And he ended up, not, not the movie, but the TV show. And he ended up having this great career um, as a producer, uh, Band of Brothers, The Pacific, all these shows. But he uh, and, a, and a friend, Michael Duggan, had put together this production, uh, Earth 2. And Tony called me uh, to say, listen, I need, uh, I need a director for an episode. Somebody's fallen out and so forth. Come on down and do it. And that was the first one that I did. And then Michael and I got on so well, he hired me to write and direct one. And then I directed the season finale. And we were really hopeful that it was going to turn into uh, another series. I was all set to sign on for the next series as one of the producer directors. Um, I got along great with the cast. One of my dear friends still came out of that, Clancy Brown. Um, who is uh, to this day still one of my very good friends? Oh, and yeah, he's, started with Earth too. Yeah, he's an amazing actor. Oh, he's fantastic, did and he's w- also a wonderful human being. Mm-hmm. Did you watch the Mortuary series he did on uh, Shudder? Uh, yes, and uh, I try to watch everything that he's yeah. in. Uh, I'm always tickled by how bad he is on film and how nice he is in real life. <laughs> right. Acting. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it's called. <laughs> um, all right. Let, now I want to talk about your, you adapted Dune into a miniseries. Um, was that, what was the, ch- that a lot of people have been trying that, to climb that mountain. What challenges did you have with it? Well, I think that's probably a topic for a whole show. Um, but uh, the short of it is the producer, Richard Rubenstein, who was Romero's partner for many years and then produced uh, my Tales from the Dark Side movie and other things we've done together. Um, he, he came to me and said, look, I've got the, the TV rights and would you be interested in figuring out a way to adapt this? And of course, I jumped at the chance because I had read the novel. The biggest problem is that for me during the adaptation was to find a way to maintain the story um, and do it cinematically. As much as a, an admirer of David Lynch as I am, uh, I thought that the movie that he made uh, missed uh, and not so much because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons, um, there were certain choices that he had to make, certain choices that he was forced to make. Um, and at the end of the day, telling the epic story of Dune in two hours is kind of a fool's errand. So I was lucky enough and I pitched it this way. I went to Richard and I said, look, Dune is broken into three books, uh, and that's the way we should do this. Each one of these should be a night of television. And uh, you start with Arrakis, then you have Muad'Dib, and then you have The Prophet. And um, each one of these is a, a, a night of television, basically. And that's the way I pitched it. That's the way I scripted it. So then it was a matter of trying to figure out a way to tell the story cinematically, because uh, as those of you who, know, who have read the book know, it's an incredibly complicated story with many characters and many uh, power structures all competing for attention. But there's also a great deal of sort of mysticism and mythology that can only be conveyed in the book through sort of internal monologue. 
And when David did that in the movie, it really did not work. It stopped the movie every time you had to go away and look at a close up and hear somebody's thoughts in their head. And so I knew I had to avoid that somehow. And so that was one of the early challenges. The structure came to me pretty quickly because I had the book to follow. Um, but uh, finding the sort of synthesizing the scenes and uh, conveying sort of a, a straight line narrative as opposed to the novel's narrative, which could be all over the place, was, was really the difficult challenge. And I wanted to be true to the book. I did not want to just say, well, I'll just make my own version of Dune. Um, so fortunately, it was very successful, won a bunch of Emmys, was a, an international hit. People really loved it. And, uh, you know, it's still out there. And so I guess we did we did our job. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very well thought of. Um, have you seen the new Dune? Yes, I have. Um, I was only peripherally involved in it um, just by virtue of my relationship with Richard Rubenstein and, and uh, the rights issues and so forth. So, you know, we got an executive producer credit, but I was not really as Denis Villeneuve showed all along. And man, I thought he did a terrific job. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that he too said, we're not doing this as one movie. Right. <laughs> that, that's a fool's errand to do that. It's it's definitely one of those movies where it ends you like oh I want I want another three hours. Yeah, well, I, the only thing that the only thing I'm sorry about is I wish I'd had a little bit more of his money. <laughs> right. Yeah. But give him all the money and they can go do anything right now. Oh well, I think he's a wonderful director. I've loved every movie he's made, and mm. um, I'm, I'm very I was thrilled when I heard that he was the one uh, that was finally going to get the nod because we had a bunch of false starts prior to that mm -hmm. and uh, uh both in terms of scripts that were turned in and in terms of directors that might might have been hired a couple were really good and had wonderful ideas but it never quite got off the ground and and he came along and, and said yeah man let's go i mean yeah he's one of the directors where between the arrival and uh, the new blade Runner, I give him any any sci-fi property let him, let him have at it you know i'm i'm a fan of blade runner 2049 mm-hmm I thought it was, uh, you know, it gets a lot of knocks, but boy, I thought, and Sicario, I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, unbelievable. Good filmmaking, good storytelling. Mm, yeah. And again, The Arrival is one of those movies I'm sitting in the theater, like on the verge of tears by the end of that movie. Oh, yeah. It was a great movie. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's fast forward a little bit because we only have so much time, but uh, let's talk about the new Creep Show. Um, so, how did you get back involved with that band? Well, two interesting things happened kind of simultaneously. Um, I, know, I know Craig Engler, who's the head of Shudder, um, oh. because he was involved in sci-fi uh, when we were, the sci-fi channel when we were doing Dune. And I had lunch with him in New York and he said, hey, you know, we're really trying to put together a deal where we can do Creep Show as a uh, signature show on our new channel. And, uh, you know, would you be interested in participating if we can get it going? And I said, hell yeah, you know. Um, I had a great time working with George on the original. And then he said, we think we're going to be able to get Greg Nicotero to EP it. And of course that was uh, uh, kind of a guarantee that the show was going to be treated with respect. The only qualm I ever had was that it would fall into the hands of some, some people who would just cheapen it or just, you know, 
uh, phone it in. But knowing that Greg was going to do it, I had all the assurance in the world that it would would honor the original, um, be updated in whatever ways it needed to be, but it would still be the creep show that we all know and love. So, and Greg asked me to come down and, and write and direct them. And so uh, I did. I was happy to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, we only have enough time to talk about one episode, but the house of the head <laughs> that again, coming at it from a, for, as a father with a daughter, just a little bit younger than the Evie character. That was so terrifying. <laughs> and well, I watched all I, kinds of crazy stuff. I, I've seen, you know, I've seen it all, but something about a little girl in this precarious situation with creepy things happening. And it's just shot so well and uh, done with such a deft hand, it's just, it really gets to me. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you got to give a lot of credit to Josh Mallerman who wrote the story. Um, and Josh had a, had a really uh, wonderful script. And um, I, I'll be honest with you, it scared the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, when Greg asked me to do it, I said, man, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. First of all, because we don't, we didn't have the money to really do all of the things that you would normally do, which would be with snorkel cameras and, and actually build an oversized dollhouse so that you could actually get in there, create every little doll uh, custom made and so forth. We didn't have the resources to do it. I was really lucky that our location manager found, uh, not our location manager, our props master, found the dollhouse at a, at a shop in Atlanta and it was perfect because of the way it opened up, I could shoot in all kinds of ways. So it was really trying to find a way into the story. And that's what scared me the most, Jason, because I, for a while, I didn't quite know how to do it. And then it came to me to actually tell the story really from her mind. Yeah, exactly. So you don't know whether there's a possession happening or whether it's just a girl with a very active imagination. And because there's those shots where it pulls away and the doll is moved, which is creepy, like in a, on its own but you're like did she move it and she's like playing a game or is it actually happening you're trying to figure it out and obviously there's no i'm sure there's no definitive answer and the the other part of it was how to film it and rob draper who's a sensational cinematographer and i talked about how we could actually put evie in the dollhouse in other words mentally put, mm-hmm. put her mm-hmm. in there. and to do that we created a pov mm-hmm. that you as an audience member would then be sort of in her mind moving through the house. Right. Cause the shots where you're like, you're framing her, but from the other side, so you're looking through the inside of the house onto her face being framed by the room in the, the dollhouse. So it's but like, then I would move in close up sort of mm-hmm. signifying with cinematic language. Oh, I'm going into her head. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we would cut to those camera moves that you saw where we were actually just sort of snorkeling through the house going up the stairs and around from one room into another room and finding the, the different characters in various degrees of disarray. <laughs> <laughs> Decapitation. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's one shot specifically where I think the head, the head is like sitting on the table and you can't kind of pull all the way through, like through multiple rooms. It's and on like, the bed. It's mm-hmm. on the master bed, uh, master bedroom. And, um, she sees it there and then we pull back from there and we go out of the bedroom, out through the hallway, out through the window to the outside of the house. She comes around 
and looks in and then she finds that her dog's been locked outside, you know, all of that stuff. So. Yeah. I'm like, how do they do that? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's all movie magic. Very but... carefully. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, th- now this, the, the, the parts of the dollhouse remind me in a lot of actually the decapitations reminds me of the movie hereditary. Have you seen that one? Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think came out around the same time. Um, was there any connection between the two or is it just happenstance? No, because I don't think I saw Hereditary when I was doing House of the Head. I have to go back and, and sort of remember the the, uh, the chronology there. Um, I have seen Hereditary, mm-hmm. um, but I can't remember when. <laughs> sure. um, so, uh, and, and Creepshow was a really interesting, this version of Creepshow has been very interesting. You know, we only have three days to shoot each one of those episodes. Wow. So we shoot each one in three days and then two of them are put together into a single episode. So I did that one. And um, the other one I was doing was um, all Hallows Eve. Mm -hmm. And the reason they put those two together is because they both had kids in them. So we had to kind of shift back and forth because we could only work with kids for so many hours a day Uh, by labor law. That's smart. So, well, you would think it was smart. Well, okay. On paper, <laughs> that was yes. The idea. <laughs> but it was uh, it was always hard anyway. Um, so you really have to uh, pre-production is is really important. You have to plan because you don't have any time to kind of goof around and figure it out. Um, and uh, Greg is an incredibly supportive producer. Um, and he's put together a really fabulous team down there. Uh, in Atlanta. I've worked with Rob Draper, the cinematographer, of course, many times, as you know. He, he did Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. He did my uh, episodes of Tales from the Dark Side, and he did some Tales from the Crypt. So he and I have a shorthand that really helped us get through stuff like that. But the production designer, Amy, Amy Holmberg, um, all the costume and makeup, and, and of course, you have Greg's K&B effects uh, that are constantly working. So... Um, it's it's a great experience down there. Um, now you might be one of the most prolific horror anthology directors in Hollywood because <laughs> you, with all the, well, I, I I don't have anything to compare, but it seems like you've done many t- uh, Tales on the Dark Side, you've done Tales on the Crypt, you've done uh, the Creep Show. Um, what do you think makes a successful horror anthology? Well. Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I think people, you know, George and I used to talk about this a lot because Romero and because we tried to sell anthologies uh, in Los Angeles uh, many times and uh, couldn't do it. People just didn't, didn't, even with the success of Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side by then, people just didn't get it. But now uh, there's a whole new, and I think it's younger people who grew up with them who have shown to be an audience for them. I think, first of all, they're short stories, okay? They uh, are told very concisely. And so you're not investing in either a long-running series or even a long movie. You get a really concise bite of horror, which is really great. Um, And each one is different. So you're not following a set of characters all the time. Uh, Each one is like its own little mini movie. So you can watch a Tales from the Crypt one week and it's completely different the next week. Same with Tales from the Dark Side, same with Creepshow. And I think people like that. Um, uh, it, I think humor has a lot to do with it. The, the successful 
anthologies that I can think of that I've been a part of have uh, all the requisite gore and all the suspense and all the horror, but they also have kind of a tongue in cheek humor, which is very appealing. I think I'm working now on a podcast with universal music group, which is a horror anthology. It's called sounds scary. And it's going to be a radio drama. It's, it's scripted fiction. Um, I've written eight episodes which are all horror stories that star the music talent in the Universal Music Group. And so you have, uh, you know, Baby Goth and, and Young Gravy and uh, Cash Doll and all, the, all these stars from the Universal Music Group, rappers and so forth, playing the leads in these, in these uh, podcasts. And it's the same thing. Each story is different. Each story has its own style. Um, one is just an out and out ghost story, horror ghost story. One is almost a twilight zone, uh, uh, type of, type of episode. Um, they're all different, but they have this theme of these, of music going through hmm. all of them. And that drops later this year. So. Oh, that sounds, I haven't heard about that. That's... <laughs> well, it hasn't been publicized yet because we're still, it's still being finished. And um, it's going to drop later this year. Okay. Well, good luck with that. That sounds really exciting. Uh, it would be very um, exciting. And it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, when you put your headsets on, it's, mm -hmm. it's like really old radio drama. The sound effects are fantastic. It's really creepy. The music is great. And you're kind of transported into this, into this world. You just close your eyes, and get the shit scared out of you. <laughs> It's it's just so funny because we started off with radio. Well, we started out with you know um, yeah. Morse code and telegrams and all that, and then and then we went to radio, and then we video took over, and now we're going back to you know short tweets and we're podcasts and you know people sitting around listening. Um, well, you're in this business, Jason. What do you think? I mean, is it is it like the has the pandemic helped that or uh, enabled it even more? Or I mean, oh. what what? Or is it just technology that is so available? What? How come we're back to that so much? I think all the above. I think I think now that we have you know phones that can you know stream anything anywhere at any time, and we all we have earbuds that you know don't even don't even need wires anymore, so you can just put it right into your brain as you're working. You know, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I did a job that was very very data entry heavy, but. I could like listen to three, four or five podcasts in a day because I, I didn't need that part of my brain to do the data entry. So wow. I get, or if you know, you're driving, if you're a delivery driver, people drive Amazon trucks and all that stuff, you know, there's a whole, I think automation has gotten to us to a bit of a point where, you know, you can turn off certain parts of your brain while you do your work and you can listen to yes. other things. Um, and also, yeah, the technology definitely has a lot made the barrier to entry really low um so it's funny i think during pandemic they said that podcast new podcasts have shot way up because we all have a lot of time time on our hands with a lot of technology at our disposal that we can get ingenuitive with but we're also we weren't going many places so we weren't having as much time to listen uh to the to the podcast while we're driving um, well i, I have a I'm mixture really of all I, I got really excited to join into this when uh when they asked me to 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 write it and direct them and i i think it's uh um it's another great avenue for storytelling, and mm -hmm. it's a perfect medium for horror storytelling. It's like, just imagine sitting around the campfire or on a spooky, rainy night, 
somebody telling you a scary story. And that's what this is. Mm-hmm. And, okay. So what was that called again? Sounds scary. Sounds scary. I love it. Uh, what other projects are you working on? Uh, well, I'm, I'm hoping to go back and do creep show for another season when that comes up. I'm also writing a lot of fiction. Um, so just, uh, staying busy. I've got a, a new novel that's out to publishers now and, uh, in the horror genre and we'll, we'll see. I I've got high hopes for that. And, uh, my agent does anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, I'll do anything for a buck, Jason. What can I say? Yes, our agents are the. If I had an agent, I would assume that they would be our biggest cheerleaders. Yeah, well, you'd hope. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's wind down. I've got some uh, fun miscellaneous questions for you. Sure, sure. Um, you've mentioned many times your love of music. Um, what is the first concert you went to, and what do you consider to be one of the best concerts you've been to? Oh, Christ. I had... <laughs> well, I grew up. Uh, listening to a lot of classical music. So I would imagine the first concert that I went to was probably in Pittsburgh when we were growing up, they had a thing called the Young People's uh, Concerts, which was the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. And all the, all the school children in Pittsburgh would be taken to the Syria Mosque, which was the big concert hall at the time. And they would play us various, and it was hosted, it was kind of like Leonard Bernstein's show. I don't know whether you, if you remember this, he had a wonderful television show where he would, basically do this. He would play a piece and describe it and talk about it and expose you to music. It was brilliant. They, unfortunately, schools don't do this anymore, which is a crime, but they, uh, it was probably the first exposure that I had to music. And then as I got older and of course become a teenager and the Beatles, of course, I, I saw them the wow. first time they came to Pittsburgh when I was whatever it was a kid. Um, we would put our bands together and that's how I got started. Um, I'd been involved in church choirs and been pretty much a musician all my life, but uh, as a professional musician in my teenage years and then through college and afterwards. So um, uh, it was a, it's a natural component for everything that I do because I consider it storytelling. I consider good music storytelling. Well, and r- I th- rhythm, especially in video form, is very important, I feel. It's, it's something you don't notice, but when the rhythm is hitting visually, it really helps. Yeah, and I had uh, a marvelous opportunity with George Romero because I was the one with the gear, and he didn't really have original music in his movies. He used library music. And when Creep Show came along, I started writing. We needed a theme song, so I started working on something that he liked. Um, and I ended up scoring the movie, um, uh, then did day of the dead for him mm-hmm. and then did Tales from the dark side. So, and all the tales from the dark side episodes. So to me, music is with cinematography and production design and the script, of course, the other major story element of any good, uh, film. So for me, it's an easy integration of things that I do. Right. It's, it's the heartbeat. Of the yeah. story. Um, and uh, so what was the best concert, would you say? Oh, there are just too many to count. I mean... Just uh, first one. The first one off the top of your head. Just pick one. Yeah. Uh, I saw Cream in Philadelphia Ooh, once. That was nice. Just, uh, unbelievable. Jeff Beck uh, several times. Zappa. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Who else? Uh, you see Zeppelin? 
You know, I've never seen Zeppelin in concert. Never. Mm-hmm. Um, the Who. I mean, I'm dating myself here. Because oh, those are all great. They were all great live shows. I mean, really great live shows. Um, uh, recently, I saw Joe Bonamassa in a concert that was sensational. He was terrific. And, and uh, the Tedeschi Trucks Band, you know, another. So it's kind of hard for me to say what's the best. Yeah, concert? I know. It's, it's a hard question. <laughs> I, I don't I throw softballs too much. And then I also went and saw Mahler's Seventh Symphony with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, mm. which, you know, blew me back against the wall. So what can I say? <laughs> right. So in the first, this is a traditional question we always ask. In the first episode, Tales of the Crypt, William Sadler goes to a diner and orders a uh, co- black coffee in the cheese sandwich. He doesn't <laughs> specify what kind of cheese. If you were to go into a diner and order black coffee and the cheese sandwich, you can make it a grilled cheese or a cheeseburger. What kind of cheese would you want? The sharpest cheddar I could get my hands on. There we go. Sharpest, the hardest, sharpest English cheddar I can get my hands on. You want that bite? Oh, yeah. The sandwich that bites back. Yeah. All right. And then as we wrap up, um, what dad advice would you like to leave for our listeners? What um, life advice, mentorship advice? What's, oh. what's, a, what's a lesson that you'd like to leave? Well, I don't want to sound pretentious. Um, I've been really fortunate that my kids love the work that I do, and I've never kept it from them. Um, I've never said, well, you're too young to see this or anything like that. I remember the first time my son saw To Kill a Mockingbird when he was, I mean, he's probably only eight or nine years old and he was floored by it, loved it. Um, so I've never kept, and I've been, I've been lucky enough to take them on the road with me. So when I've been on location, they've been with me. So first of all, they've been able to see how it works. You know, Greg's been, Greg Nicotero has been nice enough to take them around his shop. They can see all the monsters, how cool it is. They can also see how it's made. Um, and I think that, uh, including them in one's life as an adult is important. Um, my life is not separate from theirs. My life is not taking them to school in the morning, dropping them off. And then eight hours later, I show up for dinner and a bedtime story. Uh, I've tried to keep them integrated in everything that I do so that they can watch all of my, they can learn from all from all of my mistakes <laughs> and, you know, see when dad's be being a jerk, you know, and all of that stuff. Um, but it also allows me to kind of see what they're into. And, and uh, uh, I, I love whatever I know about co- contemporary culture right now, Jason, I know because of them. <laughs> oh yeah. No, they keep you informed. Absolutely. That's great. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can people fo- find you? Where can they follow you? Uh, well, I have a website, johnharrison.com, um, uh, John Ho- johnharrisonwriterdirector.com. Um, you know, IMDB. Um, Are you on Twitter? I think I saw you on You know, I, I do have a Twitter account and I do have a Facebook account. I must admit that I am not a great social media media expert. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of work. 
it takes a lot of work and I don't really know uh, how to do it. I mean, I post, I put stuff up there. If there's anything that I'm doing that I think people might be interested in, um, I'm putting together some new music drama projects, which I probably will have up on YouTube uh, at some point. They'll be sort of John Harrison's strange tales. That'll be both things I've written and composed. Um, that'll be coming in the next year or so. Okay. Uh, we'll definitely so tag you. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely post about this uh, interview and uh, tag you on it. Great. It I'd love, out. To hear, love to hear it. And I'm going to check out all the others too. Okay. Yeah. No, we got a lot of uh, people. We have, we actually did do an interview with uh, Bill Tyler. So you can uh, listen to that oh. too. Yeah. Great guy. Okay. Well, um, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we'll keep in touch. Uh, to our audience, we appreciate you for listening. We really appreciate if you give us a rating and review on iTunes and a rating on Spotify. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypt. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch. But be careful what you ask for. You may get it. Ha 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 ha.